Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast more often than not. Although on this episode of the podcast, our editor Leon Weaseltier is joined by Professor Rich Ford to discuss his essay for us, which appeared in volume one, issue four of Liberties entitled Slavery's Wages. And they use that essay as an opportunity to have a broader discussion about what the legacy of slavery can explain about life in America and what it cannot explain. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Why don't we begin with the question that I posed to you when I asked you to write your, um, even if I say so myself, extraordinary essay in a recent issue of Liberties about the meanings and implications of slavery. And I remember the question that I posed to you was a question that has been um, gnawing at me for a very long time, uh, and, and not just about slavery, but let's start with slavery. And the question it was, how much about contemporary black experience does slavery explain, and how much does it not explain? Um, you know, obviously... It can't explain everything because then we'd just be living in the past, but it can't explain nothing because the past is still present in certain ways. And so I remember that I, what I asked you to do is to kind of sort this out and give an example of how to arrive at a historically and conceptually responsible analysis of, of the explanatory power of slavery in contemporary America. So why don't you begin by giving me your thoughts about that, and then we'll have a good conversation. Great. Thank you. I, you know, it's a very hard question to answer because there were so many intervening circumstances between the end of slavery and the present moment. And so an initial question is, to what extent do we attribute contemporary circumstances to slavery when slavery may be the but-for cause, but there are also lots of other intervening causes? Um, for instance, Jim Crow segregation and all of the laws and um, deprivations and indignities that were imposed during that regime. Now, to be sure, Jim Crow segregation is an outgrowth of slavery. And so you could say all of that was caused by slavery, but analytically, that's not a very precise or helpful way to think about it. Right, again, um, except, except for the people who have this illusion about the 13th Amendment, that, uh, yeah, that it was just you know, another way of sneaking chattel slavery back in. Ah, uh, right, right. Now, if you want to describe Jim Crow as just an extension of slavery, right. um, that's, of course, a contestable conceptual exactly. view, but not yeah. one that I would embrace uh, just for purposes of of clarity and for purposes of recognizing the specificity yeah. and horrors of slavery. It's important not to call everything that followed on from it just another form of slavery. Yes, yes, yes. I I couldn't agree with you more wholeheartedly. And I, you know, I come to this obviously not through slavery. I come to to this through Jewish history and more specifically through the Holocaust. And um, I was raised 
in an environment which uh, which I which was brought back to mind when I read Tanahasi Coates's book and other writings. I was read in an environment that said that um, that Western Christian civilization was built on the backs of Jews, that there was never any reason for hope, that we can't trust anyone but ourselves, that there is only one recurring plot to Jewish history, which is a plot of persecution or destruction, uh, and so on. And I had to free myself intellectually of these ideas, which had an enormous emotional appeal to me. And um, one of the ways, one of the ways that I was able to do that was when I recognized that the idea, this kind of typological notion that there's one plot and it's a, it's a bad one, really makes it impossible to recognize when there is actual progress. Yes. And sometimes I think that the debate about the role, of the, the place of slavery in explaining contemporary black life is the flip side of the debate about whether there has been and how much progress there has been since since the very darkest years. And, yes. you know, it's very hard for oppressed oppressed groups or formerly oppressed groups to take yes for an answer <laughs> because they don't want to be fooled and they don't want to feel treasonous towards their own past. They have a sacred obligation to, me to remember what happened to their ancestors. And yet they're not living remotely the way their ancestors did because things have actually genuinely changed in many ways. <clears throat> this was certainly the case uh, for Jews in the West. And I'm wondering if when you hear me talk about this, you it echoes any of your own experience in being a black man in America and in thinking about the black experience in America. Right. Well, yes, it does. I think there is a real sense that to, you know, for some, that to say that things have improved or that um, we're not trapped by the legacy of slavery feels like a betrayal and perhaps naive and even giving comfort to the those who would deceive us or those who would downplay the uh, contemporary significance of race mm -hmm. and racial injustice. Um, and I also think there's a sense in which the narrative that slavery continues to dominate or define our lives as African-Americans is a way of tying us to past generations. It's mm -hmm. a way of saying that we're living, uh, you know, we, the, it, to establish a continuity. Um, and that's all very compelling. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, uh, we have to acknowledge the possibility of change and indeed improvement uh, just in order to make sense of the march of history, but also, I would say, to acknowledge the importance of the struggles of people who have gone before us. You know, the civil rights yeah. movement of the 1950s and 1960s made a difference, and it did achieve improvement. And it, to my mind, it would be disrespectful to the people who struggled and suffered and died in the in, in the context of that movement to claim that nothing has improved. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think that, that um, the, 
the focus, the new focus on slavery, and I promise we don't have to discuss the 1619 project, but <laughs> the, the new obsessive focus on slavery, and I say that respect because, with respect because the slaves were not my ancestors, though my ancestors, um, you know, there's a great, Dave Chappelle at one point has a, a line in one of his early shows where he's thinking of something and all of a sudden he says, he looks at the crowd and he said, did you ever try playing the who suffered most game with Jews? <laughs> Very hard. <laughs> and so, but I say this with respect, they weren't my ancestors, but there is a way in which the new obsession with the slave experience is not only uh, a way of restoring things to the historical record, because in fact, as I think you'll agree, Slavery is not exactly a new subject, either yeah. for American historians or students of American history. I mean, you know, it's been known about. But what worries me is the way it frequently comes hand in hand with a certain pessimism about black prospects in America, a certain fatalism. And I was thinking about this the other day and looking forward to talking to you about it because for something that I was planning to write and may still write, I was reading uh, James Weldon Johnson's anthology of Negro spirituals. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed immediately in that wonderful book is that so many of them are songs of hope. Yes. So not only does the historical awareness, the collective memory of slavery, not justify pessimism, but the slaves themselves hmm. were constantly battling pessimism and fatalism. Yes, yes, they, that that's very true. And I mean, a few things about this contemporary moment. It's certainly understandable that people want to emphasize that we have not achieved racial justice that there's a sense in which a lot of the pessimism that we're seeing is a reaction to um, a overly optimistic and overly heroic narrative in which the problems of racism have been overcome. The civil rights movement has eliminated that as a issue in American life. And that's a narrative that was, um, you know, has been prevalent in, you know, some mainstream conversations, although certainly not in academia where right. the, um, you know, the understanding of the, in the legacy of slavery and its continuing relevance has been, uh, you know, common coin for quite some time. But so I understand that. And, um, you know, I, I admire a lot of what the 1619, for instance, tried to accomplish. However, I do agree that um, it's a, a, a heroic narrative that's overly optimistic and Whiggish, uh, mm -hmm. the response to that shouldn't be the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's opposite, um, which is a narrative that's uh, um, completely fatalistic and pessimistic and that claims that we've made no progress. Um, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and acknowledge that while there are many areas in American life in which um, racial injustices persist and indeed in ways that will resonate with the horrors of the past. At the same time, there are many areas of American life in which there's been dramatic improvement with respect to racial justice. And if we can't see that, then we don't know how to capitalize on our successes um, right. and extend them to new areas. 
Right. I mean, the worst thing one can do in situations like this is to mistake a problem for a fate. Mm-hmm. The minute you call a problem a fate, then there's really nothing you can do about it. Because then you're dealing with deep, old, powerful, overwhelming historical causes mm-hmm. that against which no remedy is possible. And it's certainly true that even though the Congress just passed Corey's, Cory Booker's bill of the anti-Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, um, there is no remedy against the lynchings that already took place. And, um, you know, the minute you define lynching as a, 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 a normative feature of black experience, I think you might be mistaking you might be promoting a problem into a fate. And I worry about that. I mean, I've seen this again in the Jewish world. If something is a problem, it can have a solution. If something is a fate, all you can do about it is develop the right attitude towards it. But there's something it's, you know, it's, it's marked by a certain feeling of angry impotence and that's not healthy. Right. Yes. And, 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 and it can become, you know, in a sense, a part of, one's identity and i do see that that's that's something that concerns me that to the extent uh understanding my experience as you know equivalent to um in addition to continuous with the experience of people in the past who frankly suffered much greater injustices than i have if that becomes part of my identity then um i i'm 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 tied to it and unable to experience uh, unable to unable to acknowledge opportunities um and uh, unable to get appropriate perspective because it's my identity wrapped up in a particular worldview then it's impervious to to analysis it's impervious to facts that's um that's a, a real concern and it's a It's a mindset that's very understandable, as you said earlier, in the context of many, many disappointments, um, to armor oneself up against disappointment by saying, you know, things will never get better. Things will never change. I'm not falling for that again. Um, Or it's the same old problem, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it is disrespectful of the horrors that we are seeking to respect to think that because one belongs, because one belongs to the same group, uh, that those who experienced those horrors in the past belong to, that therefore one has some imaginative uh, purchase on what they experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've um, as uh, you know, I, I've always been berating or critical of the children of Holocaust survivors when they seem to forget that it happened to their parents and not to our parents and not to us. Hmm. And what happened to them is unimaginable for us, even though we are their sons and daughters and heirs and descendants and so on, even though, you know, it falls in, it falls into our lap, Mm -hmm. but our lives are significantly different. And unless we recognize that, as you say, we not only miss opportunities, we distort history. And I think we do one other thing. And I wonder what you would say about this. 
I worry that the over-identification with suffering and adversity, uh, with the suffering and adversity of one's ancestors, reduces one's uh, relationship with one's ancestors to just suffering, to just darkness, mm. to just negativity. You see? Yes. I, yeah. I, 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 I do want see. My son to know only that our ancestors were persecuted. I don't want him to know only how they died. I want them to know how they lived. Yes. And that yeah. is the same subject. No, that's that's right. You, you do see that phenomenon in you know, some of the depictions of slavery and mm-hmm. some of the depictions uh, of the black experience, which can be, um, you know, almost. Well, the, the, I think in, in 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 a laudable effort not to downplay the horrors um, there can sometimes be a tendency to show only horror mm-hmm. and to lose sight of um, resilience, joy, um, passion, which were, you know, of course, huge parts of the African-American experience always and mm-hmm. that always need to be remembered. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's right. And it, it's... Um, you know, all of this is a question of you know overemphasis or or obsessive mm-hmm. emphasis or maybe overcorrection uh, yeah. in uh, in a, in a context in which uh, an account or a mindset is a political mindset. It's almost strategic, um, and it's important not to confuse the, the strategic stance with reality. Um, right. And getting the emphasis right is one of the greatest psychological challenges that face people who are members of minority or oppressed or formerly oppressed groups. Because, as you say, if you overemphasize it, you miss the opportunities of the present and you distort the past. If you underemphasize it, there is some way in which you betray the, the legacy that you have fallen heir to. Um, And we must all be loyal to our legacies. Uh, So the trick is to see, to learn to see those legacies in all their complexities. I mean, you know, black culture in America was for a very long time created in conditions of actual slavery. I remember Mm -hmm. historians like Gutman and Genovese and Levine, when they, when they wrote about uh, black life under slavery Internally, one of the most remarkable things I took away from those books was this odd sense of the magnitude of the inner resources of these people who lived this oppressed life but did not just live oppression. It's an unimaginable spiritual achievement. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's a very important point. And it's one... Uh, you know, another thing that I you know comes to mind with respect to this mindset that we're describing yeah. is there's a sense in which there's to say, um, well, let's see, what's the best way to put it? Um, the 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 claim of solidarity 
is an important one. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to recognize that even within, uh, to, to recognize that within the group, let's say African-Americans, um, there are huge differences in terms of privilege and position. Mm -hmm. And so to say we're all continuing to experience the legacy of slavery, which is, has a way of kind of leveling and flattening out um, differences among the group, uh, leads people to say things that are uh, implausible and not helpful, like, um, you know, I'm worried about police violence every day. Now, you know, there are certainly people in the United States, African-Americans, who are worried about police violence mm -hmm. every day, mm -hmm. um, and for good reason. And their, their circumstances should be the focus of our efforts at reform. But there are also plenty of African-Americans who are not right, likely right. to be subject to police violence every day because they're privileged um, in one way or another. They live in neighborhoods where that's not as likely. Um, they have w wealth and um, status such that that's not likely. And so... You, you know, understanding that is and and you know, is important yeah, uh, yeah. to you know any effective reform project. And there's one other thing, which is uh, because of all of the intervening circumstances between slavery, the end of slavery, and the present moment, there are lots of other bad things that happen too, mm -hmm. and those bad things sometimes compounded mm -hmm. the racial injustices that are a legacy of slavery, but they're independent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, policing seems to be a good example of this to be that there are lots of problems in American policing that aren't a matter of racial injustice mm -hmm. um, at root. They, they may compound racial injustices, but uh, you, to the extent American police you know, engage in violence um, as a default sometimes, that's not something that only affects African-Americans. It's a distinct problem. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to correct the problems that both African-Americans and people of other races confronted by police violence face, we'd have to recognize that it's not just an extension of slavery. It's also other things. Well, the people who do worry about police violence every day are precisely the people who need police protection every day. Um, it's a very complicated question. Um, but I remember, I'm speaking now as the kind of white liberal whom progressives love to hate. Um, <laughs> but I remember, I was, I, I still am, but I certainly was one of those liberals who in the great debate about whether the glass was half full or half empty, liked to think that it was half full. I was quite certain that the glass was not entirely full, nor was it entirely empty. But um, how much progress was in the glass um, was the, the live question for me. And then when Ferguson happened, and then mm -hmm. Baltimore, and then Staten Island, and then Breonna Taylor, and then, of course, George Floyd, and it just kept happening, I remember being quite shaken myself. Yeah. Uh, I Really, because, as I say, it just kept happening. And, you know, Kenosha, I mean, I'm not going to recite the whole list. Uh, and I, I had to rethink and recalibrate both emotionally and intellectually and take a close look at the situation. And one of the conclusions I came to is that there is a difference between, um, let's, let's say, between policy and politics. So that 
the anger that was unleashed by that awful period of uh, in which white policemen murdered black men and women, um, the, the, the emotions, the anger, the wrath, the demonstrations, all of that, except for the violence they involved, were easy to understand and to respect and to participate in. But then one has to distinguish between that and a, a real analytical approach to what individual communities, what their real needs are, what their real needs are. And those two things frequently, frequently clash because the emotional satisfaction of saying defund the police was easy to understand, but the policy consequences of defund the police were horrible to contemplate. And so it's it's very, as I say, it's very hard to negotiate these things. Some people, of course, don't want to, are not interested in the negotiation at all. And that's what we, we refer to that as populism, which is really emotionalism in politics. And the emotion is usually anger. But I found myself, I'm talking too much here, I found myself um, thrown back by that period. Yes, there was a horrible period. And it was one in which all of the... Uh, pessimism and the fatalism mm -hmm. seemed to be vindicated. You know, mm -hmm. there's a moment where it was very easy to think, yeah, they're mm -hmm. right. You know, we, things are not getting better and they're not going to. Um, and, and, and yet one of the things that came out of that moment in Black Lives Matter, interestingly enough, is a, a, the idea that of structural racism has become mainstream now. And one of the real virtues of the account of structural racism is that you're looking for a variety of practices and institutions that aren't obviously about race and yet have racially uh, dis disparate effects and perpetuate racial injustices. And policing, it strikes me as a perfect example of this, where um, one of the reasons the problem of uh, racial violence in policing hasn't gotten better, even though racial attitudes have gotten better, uh, is that we have um, neighborhood segregation that in many contexts hasn't gotten much better. We have the isolation of the urban poor that hasn't gotten better. And there are structural causes for that, um, not all of which are directly related to racism, although some of them are that those can be attacked. Then we also have a culture of policing in the United States that is more violent than it should be. Um, and that's true for reasons that we can also identify. You know, the proliferation of firearms is yeah. one of the main reasons American policing is so violent. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in some angry conversations when I mentioned this, that American police are much more likely to be killed in the line of duty mm -hmm. than police in the United Kingdom, for instance, or Germany or countries with fewer um, guns. And that explains some of why they react the way they do. Now, you know, some people have said, well, you're just, you know, providing excuses for police officers who deserve to be unequivocally condemned. And, I, you know, I certainly agree that the police officers in cases like the George Floyd incident do deserve to be unequivocally condemned. Of course. But the 
prevalence of the problem is one that we can begin to understand in terms of structural causes if we can break out of this kind of totalizing narrative right. that it's just an extension of slavery, um, the American policing is just a new form of slave patrols. That narrative doesn't get us analytic purchase on why it is that this problem keeps recurring. Right. I mean, but the wrong way to understand any phenomenon properly is to insist upon a monocausal explanation, to insist mm-hmm. upon a single cause for any any human phenomenon. Uh, and sometimes uh, when you, one reads the, the debates about policing, I sometimes think that too many people in recent years have thought that um, helpful suggestions are about how to reform the police are a threat to their insistence that race is also a factor here, when in fact they are not a threat, but race is, when we say race is a factor, we are not saying that race is the only factor. Uh, And that's true, by the way, uh, of the persecution of other uh, minorities when you study their history. There have been, again, I'll take the case I know well, in the Middle Ages, there were terrible um, pogroms and attempts to physically exterminate Jewish communities that were animated, of course, by anti-Semitism. But if you study the sources carefully, it turns out they were also animated by social and economic grievances on the part of the peasantry against the nobility and so on, on things that had nothing to do with the Jewish victims. And that's just the way life is, that human human actions are are multi-determined. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And one might say that every aspect of the history of these kinds of injustices um, is, it's a story of a narrative that's used to justify some practice that is implemented for other reasons in those circumstances. Slavery itself obviously had economic benefits. It wasn't motivated exclusively by racial hatred. Um, Then a narrative is generated in order to justify it, and that produces uh, a type of social injustice that even outlasts its original causes. Um, These causal connections are quite complicated. And I would argue in today's environment, many of our racial justice injustices are perpetuated for, you know, a mix of reasons, racial injustice, uh, racial, um, racial hostility to be sure, but also um, one can identify um, the typical culprits, greed, self-interest, um, mm-hmm. and th- th- that are playing a significant role. And those are things that are subject to reform in a way that individual consciousness isn't. So you know, it's very hard to reform an individual's mindset, right. um, even though it's very easy to condemn it. Uh, but it's somewhat easier, and I wouldn't say easy, but it's somewhat easier to change incentives um, and to uh, change the patterns and the habits the institutionalized habits that lead to injustices. And so those are places yeah. where I think we could make real progress. I agree with you that it is impossible 
to legislate the human heart. And so anybody who thinks that by means of politics or policy, we will eliminate prejudice from this country doesn't understand the magnitude of the challenge. What is <laughs> possible is to destroy the cultural prestige of prejudice and to raise the social costs of its expression and to create social, economic, and political circumstances um, that do not favor it. Uh, those things are possible, but there is no, nothing that Congress or the Supreme Court can do that will reach into a hater's heart and erase the hatred. Um, yes. Nothing. I thought we might talk for a little bit now. Let's talk. You mentioned solidarity. And let's talk a little bit about the nature and limits of solidarity within within minority groups, as I'm calling them. Um, I mean, there is obviously when one comes from a tradition that uh, whose collective memory describes a great deal of persecution and suffering, one feels solidarity very deeply, um, almost naturally. Yeah. And one should. I mean, it is, a, it is a sacred imperative of such identity to feel such solidarity. On the other hand, sometimes I find that solidarity sometimes conflicts with the other fundamental principle of identity, which is dissent. Hmm. Um, that the fact that one must express solidarity with one's group should not be taken to the extent to which we are now recommending conformity of opinion about certain things having to do with this group. And many of the people that I have admired in my life, writers, intellectuals in the past, I admired them precisely because they showed solidarity, but then at some point came to dissent. You know, I think of the early Baldwin in the debate about um, African-Americans and Africa as an example of dissent. Um, and I think that um, solidarity sometimes, it has to have limits in intellectual honesty. Otherwise, it really just becomes a form of intimidation and group blackmail. Yes. Yeah, I love, I love this point. I absolutely agree with this. And it, it is the, a difficult thing to grapple with one wants to exhibit solidarity and the accusation of betrayal is one of the most painful. And yeah. yet, um, I, I, particularly for someone who does intellectual work, it seems to me that perhaps the worst form of betrayal would be to be silent when one knows or one has a strong conviction uh, you know against the prevailing consensus and yeah, therefore dissent is also an imperative as yes. you say and i it's one it, it's one of the harder things to grapple with because initially the dissenter makes no friends and um and in addition in the face of an expressed consensus or a at least an experienced consensus, it can be very hard to be certain that um, one is right in dissent. So you know all of the charges that are leveled against the dissenter, you know, you're undermining our solidarity, you're giving comfort to the enemy, you're a sellout. Um, all mm -hmm. of those charges 
uh, are, um, you, you know, what one, one takes to heart and worries about. Right. They're hard if I, if I get it wrong. Is, nobody's skin is thick enough. Yeah. That's, that's right. I mean, but one of the purposes of solidarity, of course, is to form an orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And um, and these orthodoxies form. Uh, we've seen one form in recent years on the subject of slavery and the interpretation of African-American past and present, uh, the past and the present. Um, and people who dissent from the orthodoxy are not usually treated respectfully as if they were guilty only of a sincere disagreement. Mm-hmm. They are accused of collaboration with the oppressor and and um, of treason, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the right. responsibilities that intellectuals from minority groups have, I think, uh, is to be always vigilant against the formation of such an orthodoxy. Yes. Because yeah. that is, it's not just the death of truth, a lot of pain and human damage results from such orthodoxies. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. If you, a dear friend of mine, bef- um, just after I got tenure, um, and I was writing something that I knew would anger a lot of people, and um, she read it and said, oh, you know, Rich, this is really good. You'll be hated. And um, But then you know, she said, you know, but if you don't make someone angry when after you've gotten tenure, if you never make people mad, you're a jerk. Right. And tenure is being wasted on you. Right. Right. Tenure is wasted on you. That, that was her point that, you know, you've got tenure and you ought to, you have a responsibility to say things that are true or that you believe to be true. um, Even when they're going to anger people, that's what tenure is for. Uh, that's right. I mean, I sometimes, I've often thought that the surest sign of intellectual honesty in an individual is his or her willingness to offend his or her own congregation. Yeah. And that if at the end of a long life of participation in public debates, it turns out that you never deviated from the conventional wisdom of your group, something is wrong. Yes. Something yes. is wrong. I think that's right. And I do think, you know, I mean, one of the things I struggle with quite a bit in this context, because I've written, you know, many things that could be seen as, um, could be seen by some as disloyal, but which I think we would describe as dissenting from um, orthodoxies about racial justice. It's to remain grounded so that you're not pulled either in the direction of false solidarity or in the direction of kind of a false contrarianism, because there, there's a lure on the other side as well, um, which is, you know, which can also distort one's thinking. But to stay you know, true to oneself, I suppose, or true to the truth, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, you know, I, something occurs to me, I promised I wouldn't do this, but <laughs> let's go from the height of theory down to the, to the sewer of popular American culture. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, second only to the war in Ukraine, the most important event of our time was the slap. <laughs> and, oh, no. um, yes. and I've been reading, I've been reading, everybody has been reading uh, reams and reams of commentary about the slap. And, 
I think one of the things we're seeing in certain responses to the slap is precisely the, the excesses of solidarity. For mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. it seemed to me pretty clear, a no-brainer, as they say in Washington, that um, when a, when an individual gets up and uses violence against another individual, that then that individual is blameworthy. And mm-hmm. when a black man gets up and hits another black man, publicly or privately, that person is culpable. Um, And I couldn't find, I mean, I looked because I am the stereotypical white liberal and I do my guilty (laughs) homework. Um, I looked for all the extenuations that I could find for Will Smith's behavior and I didn't find any. And then I looked at the commentaries and lo and behold, I find all sorts of commentators who are not troubled by the slap, who think that Will Smith needs to be protected, who so on and so forth. And to be perfectly honest, um, Will Smith being one of the most fortunate and protected individuals on God's earth, um, I don't see how one can extend group solidarity or racial solidarity in trying to explain what Will Smith did to Chris Rock. Sorry, yeah. we went there. I'm sorry. but <laughs> No. Oh, well, yeah, it, it's on everyone's mind, whether they want it to be or not. Uh, you know, I was kind of taken aback by the people who not only didn't condemn, but tried to defend mm-hmm. Will Smith's behavior in this context. I was, I was actually surprised to hear people say, um, that it's good that he stood up for his wife in this way, or that you know there that the the slap gave them hope. I was kind of flabbergasted. Oh, God. Um, and I, you know, I I can't quite wrap my head around how anyone could think that that is an expression of racial solidarity, especially given the fact that he, you know, as you say, hit another black man who yes, was. I mean, you know, it was. It, it kind of it was the saddest thing in the world to see. It was very sad. You know, not only that, but he. It, it, it was a kind of a. It was it was particularly sad because Will Smith had spent most of his career cultivating quite the opposite public image. Right. Um, and offensiveness. And, right. Yeah, to great success. Yeah. Um, and then he does something that really plays into the worst racial stereotypes about yeah. black men and uh, black masculinity. And um, I get you know, And another thing that struck me as, uh, as hard to, uh, hard to accept about the commentary afterwards was the way in which it got framed in terms of race rather than mm-hmm. what, is more obvious as a frame to be in terms of sex and gender. This is just an obvious expression of toxic masculinity at its worst. Um, I felt affronted, so I'm going to go up and belt you. And that um, seems to be to have everything to do with what happened. And race has almost nothing to do with what happened on that stage. Um, But he was a black man. So suddenly it's getting read through this racial narrative um, 
that's leading us to defend appalling behavior by, you know, as you said, a, a wealthy and powerful and privileged person. Uh, I, I just. Yeah. I mean, don't I get think it. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the standard for the proper empathetic and historically accurate understanding of black experience is is finding a way to defend Will Smith, that standard is too high. Yeah. That standard is too high. And again, I, the point I want to make here is that when we pride ourselves on our solidarity, one of the things we need to do is check our solidarity for its limits. In other words, mm-hmm. every solidarity has to have some moral limit. Otherwise, we devolve into the worst kind of tribalism and ethno-nationalism and fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, I I am a Zionist and I have my complaints with with Israel's policies of various kinds and I make them known. And one of the reasons I do that is because um, I have to find a way to include the imperative of dissent in the imperative of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people have to, the enthusiasm in our culture now for belonging, for being representative of a group, um, for being um, the, the, the preference for the community over the individual and for authenticity mm-hmm. over conscience, all this has to be questioned. It really does. Yes. Uh, it really does because it's not, and, and not least because it's no service to one's group to lie for it. Yes. Yes, right. It 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 is. It's, it's a kind of, to my mind, a surprising moment that we've arrived at where this enthusiasm for um, you know solidarity and authenticity has become so powerful. I, you know, in I wouldn't have predicted it, and uh, it's it, it is. It's very dangerous. It, it is. It, it's and, a and dangerous people, moment in many and ways. People should be told that they can be good, loyal sons and daughters without sacrificing their critical intelligence, that there is not necessarily any contradiction between loving and thinking. Absolutely. Between loving and thinking. Um, But we're in a state now where unless solidarity is total, as you said, uh, unless unless it's seamless without any cracks or any, um, then it's suspect or mm-hmm. it is um, in some unknown way, unwitting way, complicit with the enemy. Right. And that's, I, that's terrible. It's, it's, it's terrible. And I, you know, I'd add one more thing about that is I was just thinking that solidarity, in a sense, could never be total. And what really happens is that the people who are left out of the claim of solidarity are made invisible. So just, you know, to take the slap as an example, well, what kind of solidarity is it with Chris Rock to say that it was fine to go right. up and belt him while the man was trying to do his job? Right, right. Um, and even if you take something like the debates around police and police violence, um, for every victim of police violence, I'm certain that there are 10 victims of um, violent crime in right. poor minority neighborhoods and you know that's not to defend right. current policing practices, but it is to say that 
you know, to suggest that you could eliminate law enforcement and that would be an improvement right. for the lives of African-Americans is just to be blind right. to Willfully the experience blind. of most African-Americans, yeah. uh, particularly those who are worst off and you know, living in some d- dire circumstances. Well, that's what happens when you live in a world of zero sums and slippery slopes and 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 100% mentalities and you know when everything is totalized yeah everything is totalized um and the the real challenge of course and this is we haven't brought this in but the back you know the 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 framework in the background of all of this i think is that one must be one must insist upon the kind of intellectual and political complexity that we're describing even when lurking in the background is Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Ah, uh, yes, right, that's the, right. That's the and that's, ultimate background, that, so that people who have the mentality that we're criticizing now, one of the things they say, and I understand why, is that's very nice, but this is an emergency. Mm-hmm. Or, that you know, that's very nice, but we're on a war footing here. Right. And so we have to suspend certain complexities of thought and action because it really is just the children of light versus the children of darkness. Yes. And yes. that's an extra challenge. It's not that easy to do. Right. No, that's absolutely right. So with Trump in the background, it, he absolutely is the background of all of this. Right. That, you know, sense of threat, which is understandable and quite real, uh, has led to extremes, you know, the no atheists in foxholes, and, right. and, and and it's absolutely right that it's more important than ever ever to avoid um, totalistic thinking and blind solidarity in these circumstances, even though it's hard to do. And it's very um, tempting in these circumstances. Yeah. It's very tempting. Um, Rich, I want to thank you for a really wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your for your contribution to liberties and. I look forward to your next troublemaking essay. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you are a subscriber and you would like to reread or read for the first time Rich Ford's really brilliant essay entitled Slavery's Wages, it is in volume one, issue four, and of course, as always, available to you both in hard copy and on our website. If you are not a subscriber, head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition. Thank you.